Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Like I said, we'll be in uh, 1 Kings chapter 8. We'll be in the last uh, final verses there. And as we come to chapter 8, I was hoping last time to be able to finish, uh, but didn't go as quite as planned. Uh, so we're going to uh, look at the last section. I, I thought, uh, how do you handle uh, times like this when we, we come? Clearly, I, I know the next section I need to be able to teach on. Uh, you can either just quickly glance over it, so maybe skip over it, uh, move quickly over it and jump on to the next section because you, you probably need a large portion to begin in chapter 9. But it really comes down to a practical question. Um, we're not ready to be able to start chapter 9 until we finish chapter 8, and we need to be able to do that. So uh, tonight, we spend our remainder of the time in chapter 8, and hopefully it's a helpful reminder of us as we think about uh, difficult things, or as we read over uh, sections of biblical narrative like this, and we just read over things, and uh, we don't necessarily have the understanding of the original audience that they would have. That The Bible is written within a culture and uh, people utter phrases and, and they have practices that is understood by them. We might have a, a slither of understanding of that. Uh, we th- think we know what they're talking about, but really the dangerous thing is when you think you know what someone's talking about, but they're talking about something else or we don't get the full depth of what they're talking about. Say, for example, I say Father's Day in uh, Australia or Father's Day in the United States of America. Both of them very, very similar days in which you celebrate uh, and, uh, you know, uh, fathers, uh, people give them honor and things like that. But uh, the th- thing is, they're on different days. Um, Father's Day in Australia is the first Sunday in September, uh, whereas in America it's in June. So one time Sarah sent my father a Father's Day card, and um, she was like, oh, I've missed it, I've been late, and my father received it. And she said she's very organized and very early, sending a Father's Day card in, uh, in the end of June, uh, or August for um, uh, September, but or take a, another example of seasons. Again, uh, we have the same seasons in Australia. Uh, we call it autumn, not fall, but uh, they're different. They're backwards uh, in the United uh, United States and America because of the northern and the southern hemispheres. But that's not the only thing. In Australia, seasons actually begin in the first of the month, so uh, spring begins in the 1st of September and runs to the 30th of November. However, in the USA, they don't follow, follow the, the dates of the 1st. They, they follow the equinoxes. Uh, so technically, fall this year begins on September 23rd. So although you, you have similar terminology, you have similar... T- the different cultures help you understand those type of things. Now, that happens, and you have similar terms or, or understandings. Some, you don't even have the same days or names. Uh, in Australia, again, the Queen's birthday or now the King's birthday is a celebration. Uh, you don't have a king or a queen, so you don't celebrate that day. President's Day, we don't have that in Australia. Things like Thanksgiving is, a, is, a, is a, uh, an American holiday. We don't have anything like that. So when we step into the culture of the Bible, to be able to understand a little bit about their culture and their practices helps us understand terms and phrases that we might merely just glance over. These books when the law of Leviticus was actually practiced. So when we read a passage like this in 1 Kings chapter 8, 
We might believe we understand them, but we might not know the full depth of what is actually happening, what things are. So here's five verses. Let's uh, read them here in verses uh, 32 to uh, 62 to 66. And then we'll kind of look at how understanding the culture that they're in might help us understand even verses that we come across like this. So hear now the word of the Lord from 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 62 to the end of the chapter. Then the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifice before the Lord. Solomon offered a, as a peace offering to the Lord 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. The same day the king consecrated the middle of the court that was before the house of the Lord. So that there he offered the burnt offering and the grain offering and the fat pieces of the peace offerings because of the bronze altar that was before the Lord was too small to receive the burnt offering and the grain offering and the fat pieces of the peace offerings. So Solomon held the feast at the time and all Israel with him, a great assembly from Lebo Hamath to the brook of Egypt before the Lord our God seven days. On the eighth day he sent the people away and they blessed the king and went to their homes joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord had shown to David his servant and to Israel his people. So we come to a passage like this, and again, we read over it. We understand generally the principle that's happening. There's some form of sacrifices happening. They're holding some form of feast. They're all together. They all get sent away. There's dates. We understand what seven days is. On the eighth day, we understand what this means. Uh, we might be a bit thrown aback by the the quantity of the animals that were sacrificed on this day. But again, we need to understand what is happening at this point and also what is happening within the culture that helps us understand this verse. Mainly, the main reason that the Lord built this house was that he would be able to dwell with his people, but his people would be able to come and make offerings and sacrifices to him in one place. Now, previously, they would have to move around where the, the priests were located but now it's all in one place, one location. Deuteronomy 12, that promise that is we've constantly repeated throughout this time, when they're going into the promised land, they're told that you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, the way of the, the people around them, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all the tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go. So this is a place that the temple is finally built in. The place where the Lord has placed his name, the place that the Lord has chosen out, where the place the Lord will dwell, and then there you shall go as the people all gather together, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and your, the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of the herd of your flock, and there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice." you and your households in all that you do to undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. So here the temple has been built, the place has been set aside now in Jerusalem, the city of David. Now this changes a pinnacle point, what happens in all the history that has come up to this point after the Exodus, now to this point, they have a place to go. They have a place in which they're all going to go to be able to make the sacrifices. God used to live in a tent and move around. The tabernacle moved with them. But now there is a place, a temple in which they should go. 
to be able to go and make their offerings and all those things listed there, their tithes, contributions, vow offerings, uh, firstborn of the herd. You shall eat before the Lord your God, rejoice. And, and all these things, now we have a central location where that is going to happen. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the three offerings that are listed in this passage in verse in chapter 8. And we're also going to look briefly at what that feast is they're celebrated. Now, we've mentioned that feast before, but hopefully it's a good reminder. So the first offering that we're, we find out about is a peace offering, a peace offering. If you turn back to Leviticus chapter 3, that is where we find these three times, these offerings in the first section of Leviticus. But Leviticus chapter 3, you have there uh, the burnt offerings in chapter 1, great offerings chapter 2, peace offerings in chapter 3, sin offerings in chapter 4. So here in Leviticus 3, we're, we're going to go over it, but it's, it's quite simple. We see specific laws about uh, a place uh, made in Deuteronomy chapter 12 that they're going to find a new place. But overall, this is what a peace offering is. The animal, they sacrifice an animal, a male or a female. It is to be without blemish before the Lord. They lay their hand on it uh, to be able to kill it, and they kill it at the entrance in the tent of meeting. The priests then throw the blood against the sides of the altar. But then also it's, it's considered what is known as a food offering. And a food offering is that they burn the fat in verse 16 and 17. The priest shall burn, uh, burn them on the altar as a food offering with a pleasing aroma. All the fat is the Lord's. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places that you eat either fat nor blood. So, here you see this peace offering. That This peace offering is to be made. The sacrifice is made. The, the, the Lord, the portion that is the Lord is the fat. That's where they try and burn the fat later. We saw that in the passage in 1 Kings. They, they uh, burnt the, the portions of the fat, and they remained the Lord's. But if you continue over in Leviticus chapter 7, you'll see the purpose of why they would make such a peace offering in chapter, in verse 11 to 18. This is the law of the sacrifice of the peace offerings that one may offer to the Lord. If he offers it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the thanksgiving sacrifice unleavened loaves mixed with oil, unleavened wafered smeared with oil, and loaves of fine flour well mixed with oil. With the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving, he shall bring his offering with the loaves of leavened bread. And from it he shall offer one loaf from each offering as a gift to the Lord. It shall belong to the priest who throws the blood of the peace offerings. And the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any, it, any of it until the morning. But if the sacrifice of his offering is a vow offering or a free will offering, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers his sacrifice, and on the next day what remains of it shall be eaten. But what remains of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day shall be burned up with fire. If any of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering is eaten on the third day, he who offered it shall not be accepted, neither shall it be credited to him. It is tainted, and he who eats of it shall bear his iniquity. So here, particularly, what we're looking at is a peace offering of thanksgiving. Now, there's those two other offerings that I mentioned there, the vow offering or the free will offering. But what you have here is a specific offering that is made 
but is made, the Lord gets the fat, he makes loaves of bread, which he also gives to the priest. But the person who makes the sacrifice then eats the other portion of meat. So when we see those numbers, those large portions of numbers in 1 Kings chapter 8, it's not merely that all these animals are sacrificed and then all their carcasses are thrown out. It's actually to feed the people who are making these sacrifices. You think about all the people that are gathered there that you see in chapter 8 at the beginning. All the tribes, the, nation, the elders all come together before the, the king. It is all those people, all those sacrifices that are then feeding all those people as these peace offerings that are not to be left over. So you see that these peace offering is, is thanksgiving. So this offering is made is, is made of thanksgiving. And here the people are giving thanks to God. We see at the end of chapter 8 for all that he had done for his servant David and all of Israel. They're giving thanks to God for the many blessings as they see the promises fulfilled underneath King Solomon of the building of this temple. That these portions are not wasted. Now, Leviticus chapter 7, again in verse 28 to 36, um, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever offers a sacrifice of his peace offering to the Lord shall bring his offering to the Lord from the sacrifice of his peace offerings. His own hand shall bring the Lord's food offerings. He shall bring the fat with the breast, that the breast may be waved as a wave offering before the Lord. And the priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast shall be for Aaron and his sons, and the right thigh he shall give to the priests as a contribution of the sacrifice of his peace offering. Whoever among the sons of Aaron offers the blood of the peace offerings and the fat shall have the right to the thigh of the portion. For the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed I have taken from the people of Israel out of the sacrifice of their peace offerings and have given them to Aaron and the priests and to his sons as a perpetual due to the people of Israel. This is the portion of Aaron and his sons from the Lord's food offerings. From the day that they were presented to serve as priests of the Lord, the Lord commanded this to be given to them, to the people of Israel, from the day that he had anointed them. It is a perpetual due throughout their generations. So here these peace offerings, again, the fat portion goes to the Lord. The, the, for, the food is then presented and eaten by the person. But there's specific portions of the meat cuts that are given to the priests. Again, the, the loaves go to the priests as perpetual due. And then here, these other portions of meat also go to the, um, to the priests. Again, we're reminded that here is quite a large sacrifice when we consider over this feast over seven days, 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep. So here you have all these offerings and sacrifices given to the Lord, the fat portions, um, the loaves given to um, the priests, but then also this meat being shared around and consumed by the people that are all there. So we, it's very, very practical, again, when we think about this at the beginning of chapter 8, of all the people that are gathered here, there's food that's coming from somewhere, and this is a portion of where the food comes from. But uh, again, this is, this is an offering, a peace offering. This is Noah's offering that he makes after the ark is, um, lands in, Gen in Genesis chapter 8. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again strike down every living creature as I have done. Here Noah makes a peace offering to the Lord and the Lord smells it. 
and he accepts the peace offering, and then he makes this covenant with himself, this Noahic covenant, not to be able to do what he has done before. But also when you think about it, these terms of sacrifices, as we continue to turn about this, this is a very vivid vivid image in the lives and the eyes of the people of God. It would have been very common for this practice to happen, uh, for young boys to be a part of the preparations, uh, for, for this whole process to be uh, the case. So you're living in a culture where sacrifice is, is around you. We don't do that type of thing. When we think of sacrifice, it's often sacrifice of time and energy, but not to the point of death. Whereas you think about sacrifice here, you see a, a, a very vivid, vivid image of a sheep dying, the blood shed, the fat burned, the pieces cut up and shared and distributed, and even to be able to eat of them. So therefore, when Paul used terminology in the New Testament, and he says something like, I appeal to you, brothers, in Romans chapter 12, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We use this and we go, well, this means that I need to, you know, be nice to people. This is my sacrifice. Well, to some extent that's true, but we don't get the full depth of what the image is that would have been in that time when the Bible was written. A living sacrifice is a very visual image. You know, again, in Ephesians chapter 5, walk in love as Christ has loved us and gave himself up for it, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Again, this image of sacrifice here is that we are to walk in love. Christ loved us. How did he love us? He gave himself like a sheep um, is that substitute there. Or Philippians 4, chapter 18. I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus uh, the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Here, another term of that sacrifice, that image that we see here. We'll speak of that briefly uh, later. But the second uh, sacrifice they make is a burnt offering. So if you turn to Leviticus chapter 1, Leviticus chapter 1 gives us the definition, the understanding of a burnt offering. Now, a peace offering is an offering of thanksgiving. A burnt offering, and in a peace offering, the offering is made of portions. The Lord gets the fat, the priest gets certain aspects of the animal, the people consume the animal. A burnt offering is not like that at all. Here you have an animal, including uh, not just uh, the herds, which is a peace offering, is, is um, specifically it can be uh, male or female, an animal from the herd. Whereas here, a burnt offering is not just an animal from the herd. Uh, it has to be a male, it cannot be a female. But you also can have smaller birds, turtle doves or pigeons. Remember when uh, um, Mary and Joseph went to be able to um, present Jesus to have him uh, at the temple. They gave an offering and their, their offering they gave was a small bird. Because they're poor, they couldn't afford a whole thing. So here you have the, the system of the law. So it has to be a male, not female. No mention of that for birds, but specifically for the, the first uh, in the herd. It, it's, its blood is to be thrown on, against the side of the altar. It's to be cut into pieces, but instead divided amongst the people. The whole thing is to be burnt on wood, and that's where we get the definition of a, a burnt offering. And we find out the purpose of that in Leviticus chapter 1, verse 4, 
where it says that he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. So a peace offering is one of thanksgiving unto praise, that aroma going up to the Lord, giving thanks and praise to him. But here, there's a substitution. There's a sin that occurs, and the person who then uh, lays his hands on him, it, it switches from the person, uh, the priest, to the person, and it makes atonement for him. In chapter 6, verse 8 and 13, here you see more definition of what is to happen. Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his son, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the the hearth of the altar all night until the morning, and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. And the priest shall put on his linen garment and put on his linen undergarment on his body, and he shall take up the ashes to which the fire has been reduced to the burnt offering on the altar and put them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garment, put on the other, on other garments, and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. The fire in the altar shall be kept burning on it, it shall not go out, and the priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it, and shall burn it on the fat of the peace offerings. The fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually, it shall not go out. So here you see that the, the sin is, is placed upon the animal, the animal is divided, burnt, is burnt with the fat portions from peace offerings, and even after it is burnt, it's burnt for a whole time, the, the priest then needs to take it outside the camp. And you see, even as the priest interacts with this representation of sin, he needs to change his outfit. His garments are then unclean, you might say, because of this transfer of sin in this, uh, this sacrifice. But what you see is, that when we read over things like, oh, there was a burnt offering, we just think, oh, it's just an offering that was burnt. But there's a whole process that's in place specific to the burnt offerings that different for peace offerings, and they're made for different purposes. Here in 1 Kings, they understand their need for sin and atonement. These burnt offerings that are made, the the. The garments are changed. It goes from something that is bloody to something that is ashy that is transferred to a clean location outside of camp. Again, this is an example for us when we understand sin and then we come to passages of how we are to handle sin. Sin is very important. In the Old Testament, it was a very visual thing what sin did. You saw the sacrifice the price of what it did. But then you see practices. What happens is how we handle sin in the New Testament. In Titus chapter 3, for a person stirs up division after warning him once and then twice have nothing more to do to him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. You see this separation of a sinner from a believer. We're to warn them, Titus says, once and twice, and then afterwards have nothing to do with them. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. But I'm writing you this, that not associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a viler, a drunker, drunkard or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outside it? It is not those inside the church whom you are to judge. 
God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. So again, the law gives this visual idea of what is happening. There's a separation between the people of God and sinners. And here, what you see in the burnt offering is there's a separation between the people of God, the pure, the holy, and the sin which is transferred and burnt up. Where you see in Jude, the end of chapter Jude, have mercy on those who doubt, save others by snatching them out of the fire. Again, this image of a burnt offering might be something that's prevalent in there. What happens to someone? It, 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 the sacrifice is burnt in their place. What happens if someone does not repent truly? Well, they go to the fire. Without just show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Again, this image of garments, that even the garment that is transferring this, this sin atonement outside the camp is tainted. It needs to be changed and cleansed. This is the only sin offering that is mentioned in 1 Kings chapter 8. There's two other types of offering. There's two types of offering. There's a thanksgiving offering, and what you might say is a sorry offering, a sin atonement offering. So you have a peace offering that's a thanksgiving offering. You have a burnt offering, which is a sin offering. And then you have sin offerings and guilt offerings. One is for a sin that is unintentional. A guilt offering is a, is a sin specifically related to holy things. So you have these different portions. We won't go over those there now. But here again, we need to understand that this is a practice and, and warnings that flow throughout the Bible. In Jeremiah 44, it says, It is not because you have made offerings and because you sinned against the Lord and did not obey the voice of the Lord or walk in His law and His statutes and His testimonies that this disaster has happened to you this day. Here, they're making offerings, but they're doing it, and they're sinning against the Lord. They're not obeying what he said. The last offering that we see in chapter 8 of 1 Kings is a grain offering. And again, if Levi chapter, Leviticus chapter 2, we'll have a look. But previously, there's animals that are sacrificed, um, but now it's grain. Now, we think about Cain and Abel, and we often think that uh, Cain made a, an unacceptable offering to God through a grain offering. Now, ultimately, there's truth to that. A grain offering is not a sin offering. There's no blood that is shed. So it's not a sin offering, but there is offerings that are acceptable that are grain. Either flour with oil, frankincense burned as a memorial portion. And this is for the priests. There is no leaven or honey. It's to be seasoned with salt. There's a reference there to be able to, the salt of the covenant, Numbers chapter 18. All the holy contributions, the Lord, the people, the people of Israel present to the Lord, I give to you and to your sons and your daughters with you as a perpetual due. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord for you and for your offspring with you. So here these grain offerings are to be presented again very specific instructions about how they are to be handled but these grain offerings like the peace offerings is a thanksgiving offering but mainly this offering is to be able to help provide for the priests leviticus chapter 7 again it gives a help, helpful explanation and every grain offering baked in the oven and all that is prepared on the pan or a griddle shall belong to the priest who offers it and every grain offering mixed with oil or dry shall be shared equally among the sons of Adam, Aaron. 
So here you have, again, the peace offering is quite different. The peace offering is whoever sprinkles the blood of the animal on the altar, they get the first portion of the thigh, and then there's divisions. But here, this, this grain offering is not specifically uh, made for the Lord, although it's thanksgiving to the Lord. It is to be shared with the priests. The priests get this, and it's equally to be divided amongst all the, the priests. Not merely just the sons, but the sons and the daughters. So here you have, uh, again, Deuteronomy chapter 26 might be a helpful verse. And you shall take some of the first of all your fruit of the ground, which you have your harvest of your land, and that the Lord your God has given you. And you shall put it in a basket, and you shall go to the place the Lord your God will choose to make his name and dwell there. So here this, this offering of the fruits of the ground are then to be able to be presented before the Lord. Again, thanksgiving. Again, we think about this and this time and this day of what's happening there at that great day of the seven-day feast that's happening in uh, 1 Kings. It's quite a long way from how it changed in and 1 Samuel chapter 2. In verses 17 to uh, 12 to 17, I won't uh, go over this in detail. We've studied this. But here, Eli's sons, uh, worthless men, they don't know the Lord. And what they do is they... They make these sacrifices, but what they were doing was they're stealing the fat portions, which are set apart for the Lord, and they're ingesting them themselves. They're taking them themselves. Now, a portion of animals were given to the priests as perpetual dues, but here they're taking it themselves. Later we find out that what they're doing is they're also, they've got uh, temple prostitutes there that they're sleeping with, they're uh, they're not offering the Lord uh, in the way that he has treated. They're not treating the holy things as holy things. They're, they're taking the, the unclean, uncommon, unholiness and bringing it into the temple. And verse uh, 17, Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Now you think about what's happening there, what happened to Eli's house, but then you think about years later, Now you have underneath Solomon, they're making these sacrifices as the Lord had required with the law. So you have all of these things taking place. And when we read a chapter like chapter 8, and we read over these peace offerings, these burnt offerings, these grain offerings, we often don't actually think about what's actually happening there and the extent of these following. And then what you see is then the practices of the other nations creeping in and them not following those practices. Again, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, it's that they're to go into the land to be able to inhabit it. The Lord is going to choose a place in which they can follow the law as the Lord has laid out how to make these offerings. So Leviticus is quite a well-structured book, actually. In the first seven chapters, it deals with these five offerings that are to be made. In the end portion, what you see is is these rituals of these seven feasts, which are to be practiced uh, throughout the life. And Leviticus chapter 23 is the specific law which deals uh, with the feast that is mentioned in 1 Kings chapter 8. We won't won't go over this in great detail, but here uh, in Leviticus chapter 23, you have what is known as the Feast of Booths. In the seventh month of the seven days, the Feast of Booths, the first day you shall be a holy convocation. Not do any work. It's, uh, it's time to be set aside. You shall present food offerings to the Lord. Again, that's what's happening in chapter 8. 
The eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present your food offering to the Lord in a solemn assembly. Here are these appointed peace. You, you proclaim these times, presenting them to the Lord. What do you offer? Burnt offerings, grain offerings, uh, sacrifices, drink offerings, each on their set days. Uh, these are the Sabbaths. You, you fulfill these vow offerings, free will offerings, which also come underneath that category of peace offerings, as we read Leviticus chapter 3 and then 7. And here you are to be able to take them, the trees, the branches, the leaves, the willows, rejoice with the Lord seven days. And what you are, you're doing is they're celebrating. They, they go from living in houses, and, and over these seven days, they actually go live in booths. That's a... Uh, why it is called a feast of booths is they go live in houses. And again, you think about the significance of this. We touched on this at the beginning of chapter 8. Here the Lord has lived in a tent ever since he has left Egypt. And the Lord has dwelt in a tent for those many years, those four centuries, just over four centuries. And here, now the people of God are dwelling in tents and the Lord is living in a house that he is going to dwell and place his name there Forever, They are to remember the wilderness wanderings of what God has done and how he provided for them. And so this is exactly what happened in 1 Kings chapter 8. Remember in chapter, verse 2, here they have this feast of the month of Ethium, which is the seventh month, a specific time in the feast. In the seventh month, they would also have the Day of Atonement, days before the Feast of Booths, where another thing we could spend a lot of time in there. So over this whole period of time, they're celebrating this, this feast, this feast, the booth. And so at the end of chapter 8, you see the conclusion of this feast. On the eighth day, he sent people away. They blessed the king and went to their homes, joyful and glad of heart for all their goodness that the Lord had shown to David and his servant and to Israel, his people. Again, what a great height it is for the people of Israel at this point. Not only is, is it significant about the Lord building a house in which they would constantly, now this is where they would go. Sometimes uh, with, uh, I don't know what it's like for you guys at uh, Christmas and, and Thanksgiving, but you know things change. Our in-laws have sold their house, and so no longer they live in their big house where people can come and gather. They're living with uh, uh, my mother-in-law's mom, and that house is quite small. We all can't go there to be able to go stay. So we need to work out who's going where. That tradition that has now changed, that we used to have it all worked out, but now it's changed. And so to, there's a new tradition starting here in Israel that will be practiced throughout all the time of this temple. It will get taken away in the 70 years of captivity. They will rebuild the temple. It will be practiced day in and day out, basically until the whole period of time. It will change in different periods of time. But in Jesus' day, these are the things that is happening during the days and times of Jesus, the sacrifices that are being offered. It's all pre present in all these types of things. So it's helpful for us to be able to understand these portions. But again, these great heights that you could potentially count on your hands of these times where the people of God are actually worshiping God the correct way as he is laid out in his law. They're worshiping God correctly. They're giving thanks to God and praising God for what is going to happen. And this is important for us to understand, not merely as we read chapter 8, but as we continue to read 
through the book of 1 Kings. And we see all these other practices come in. The set purpose that the Lord had this to be able to place his name in the temple, to be able to dwell in the temple, that they might be able to bring offerings in the temple. And what happens? The temple gets desecrated. The temple gets uh, annihilated in the end. But abominations take place in this temple. This place which is made for God to be able to dwell and the people to be able to make atonement for sin. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His Glory and His Gospel.